The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Wendy, why did the narcissist cross the road? Oh, boy. Why? As she thought it was your boundaries. <laughs> As in cross boundaries? Okay, okay. So wait, I have another one. What did the narcissistic cow say? What? Me! Me! I suspect there might be more. Yes, there is. There is. A narcissist walks into a bar. Then what happens? <laughs> well, the rest of the joke doesn't matter. <laughs> That's it. So I guess here we go. Our topic today, you may have guessed, is uh, narcissism, specifically being a narcissistic parent and even more specifically being the child of a narcissistic parent. But also being able to write about it brilliantly, fearlessly, and even with humor, if you can find it. Yeah. So. You might have figured this out. Our guest today is Leah McLaren. She is a Canadian author and journalist, kind of famous. If you remember Mo back, I don't know, 20 years ago, 30, almost 30 years ago, 20 years ago, I guess she was writing for the Globe and she was writing all this personal stuff. I read her faithfully, religiously even. Yeah. So she's been writing personal journalism, which when she started was like, oh my God, all the old boys were like, harumph, harumph. Meanwhile, you know, guys were writing about their hemorrhoids and stuff. So she's been a regular columnist for the Globe and Mail. Her writings appeared everywhere from Chatelaine to McLean's, Times of London. She now lives in London. She's had a bunch of boys. We can talk about that. You mean children? Yeah, as in children. Yeah, she's actually given birth to them. And she thinks, she actually wrote that they're the most beautiful children in the world. So we'll have to like argue about that. Oh, my children and your children are the most beautiful. I think she's on the line. Anyway, go ahead because there's more. Well, Leah's written a book. And it is her third book, and it's called Where You End and I Begin. And it is about her relationship with her mother, Cecily Ross, who is also a writer. And when Cecily was a child, and I mean a child, like 12 or 13 years old, she was coerced into a sexual relationship with a man, a horse riding instructor who worked for her father. And by coerced, I mean raped. She was she was a child. This relationship with the horseman, as he's called in the book, went on for several years and had an overarching effect on Ross's life, including and especially her relationship with Leah. Yeah. And they've been fighting over who would tell that story and how the story would be told. I've sort of been hearing about this in the ether because some, the mom's a writer and kind of famous, too. So anyway, Leah has now written a rather telling book about, about the whole thing. Well, it's sensational. And I got to tell you, Wendy, the truth is this story is so familiar. I want to send copies to all my friends and relations because Lee has essentially written a story I'm afraid to write myself. And there is no horseman in my mother's life, but there were deep secrets. And her style of parenting, if you want to call it that, evolved in much the same way. So, yeah, you have a lot of secrets. I don't know whether you're going to tell them all, but a lot of them are about mothers. Today, it's about Leah. My mom was a piece of work, too, but she loved me. Like, the real difference was that she loved me, obviously, and I was an only child, and so therefore, you know, I'm amazing. My mom told me I was amazing, so I must be amazing. And I recently, I wrote a, I wrote a piece about her just recently uh, in The Globe, actually, where Leah used to work, about being raised by a woman of ill repute. And anyway, there were some secrets that I didn't feel comfortable sharing at CBC, but uh, we want to hear about Leah's story. Yes. Yes. Enough about us. Let's talk more about us. Leah McLaren joins us next. Hey, Leah. How are you? Hello. I'm good. How are you guys? Good. So you're in London with the beautiful boys and beautiful husband. Yeah, I am. He is a boy. Last time I checked, you know, it's a social construct. 
gender. The whole personal journalism thing, like you've been writing, I don't know, you're, you've been writing about trends and women's issues and big political issues and, you know, big newsy stuff and also stuff, very personal stuff, which was sort of new. And it just seems, I don't know, I guess I, I shouldn't talk, but it seems that everybody these days is kind of like spilling the beans about family and like your family's particularly <laughs> interesting. But what's going on? Why is everybody talking these days? I think the internet started that? <laughs> Just a guess. My column, which was how I started, you know, it's funny to look back on those years and the amount of like pushback I got, but also it was just an amazing opportunity. I actually, one of my first readers of the book was an old mentor of mine who's now like news director at CBC. And she, she said to me, you know, she loved the book, but she said, I think you were too easy on us all of us, like in management of the globe, because we really, we really like commodified you, you and all the young ones. And I said, yeah, but you also like gave me a career and taught me how to write and like five minute seminars that taught me more than journalism school ever would have had I attended. So I don't know. It's, but it was a weird time because there was no social media. I'd go in on Monday and like <laughs> my inbox would just be like full, just brimming. And it would just be like hate after hate because they had no, there was no way to hate someone in the public eye then without hating them directly. <laughs> so in a way, I think social media for some people who are in that kind of woman of ill repute public eye, I don't know why people just don't stop looking at it. Like just don't look at it. Your email inbox, though, is hard to look at. They used to put our, remember, our Globe and Mail email addresses at the bottom of the column. Disaster. And we were meant to, like, respond to all the readers. And it would be like, you filthy girl, I want to do X, Y, and Z to you. Oh, thank you very much. Please don't drop your subscription. <laughs> it was weird. But that has not stopped you. That has never stopped you doing what Wendy calls personal journalism, which everybody seems to be doing right now through social media. So yours, you're coming through a more formal channel now with this book. But you've always been fearless and you've always been open, despite the negative pushback. But you've also had positive pushback as well. You've had fangirls like me, but you've never hesitated to share. This new book is definitely going over the edge, but you have always been wide open. And I, I wonder at your fearlessness, is that what it is or you just don't care? Well, no, like actually, I mean, the column was very much a specific mandate. One of the editors of The Globe, a guy called Richard Abbas, brought in a Brit for when it was a newspaper war. I remember he said, I just want this call. It's like a girl about town column. Just talk about your friends and the stuff you do. And it was personal, but it was very much meant to be kind of arch and funny. And in fact, I used to call it like the Japanese fan dance, show all, reveal nothing. Because I really actually didn't put a lot of my real feelings or what was going on in my intimate life. You know, it was meant to sort of entertain and amuse and hopefully enlighten from time to time. And then after that, I spend a lot of time, you know, I've done a lot of long form journalism and actually quite a bit of investigative journalism for magazines like McLean's and Toronto Life. And that's a very, very different kind of hat that you wear when you do that, because it has nothing to do with me. It's just about, you know, getting the documents and landing the interviews and stuff like that. So I find it totally fascinating, though, because it's storytelling. And also, I've written fiction. So I've written two novels as well. So this book, Where You End and I Begin, the book with the long title, 
it kind of, I feel like it sort of rolls all of those skill sets together. And it was actually a book that I didn't mean to write. It was born as a collaboration between me and my mother from conversations we had post Me Too, when frankly, a lot of women who had been abused or harassed or whatever were seething about it, as we know, but also wanted to find out like what happened to that, you know, that teacher who felt me up in the cloakroom in grade five. Like, I want to find out what happened to that fucking guy. In my mother's case, it was really a pretty terrible story that marred an otherwise quite lovely and, you know, affluent, horsey, idyllic kind of childhood. So we embarked on this, this kind of investigation. I thought it was going to be like, I'm the investigative journalist, and I'm going to find out what happened to this guy as a kind of act of devotion for my mom. But what I forgot is that I have a really, really complicated relationship with my mom, which is both intensely close and at times very emotionally enmeshed in my childhood and my adolescence particularly. And since I've had children, it's become very fraught because what happens when you have children, or at least it happened to me, is that all of your parenting instincts are based on kind of what happened to you. And mostly what happened to most of us had to do with what our mother did. Because my mom, my parents had a pretty traditional marriage. Like my dad was around, but he was a traveling furniture salesman. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And later I went to live with her as a single mom in the city. So she was so formative. And I started to get angry and upset because I realized a lot of my instincts were just quite weird and maybe not the best thing for my kids. So we embarked on this book and then, I don't know, we had some fight over whether or not she was going to pick me up at the airport. You know how, you know how arguments with your mother start, <laughs> just like how arguments with your husband or anyone start. It's just like, what did that start over? Anyway, and it ended up, she sort of said, well, I'm not going to do this. I don't want to do this. And I, I had been for six, eight months by that time writing a proposal. And my, I went to my agent, who I think was about to send it out. And I said, like, I have a problem. And my agent said, just keep writing. Just keep writing and see what comes out, because I think there is a book here. I just think it's maybe not about the horseman. I think it's about you and your mother. And I was so pissed off that my mother had, had sort of pulled out that I thought, yeah, fuck it. I'm just going to keep writing. And I did. And then what came of it was this book. So it's not the story of the horseman. It's not about the story of my mother's abuse. It's about the story of the story. It's about what victim narratives and narratives of trauma mean to families and the power that they actually wield. And the question of the very live and thorny question of who owns them. You know that term, like her story to tell, like when someone says to you, oh, what's going on with Linda? Oh, uh, that's her story to tell. That really irritates me. Cecily's still around. She still is. She's totally alive and listening to this. <laughs> well, we can get into that in a sec, but I just, I just wanted to give our audience a sense of like, your mom was fascinating. She's a great writer. She was ruthless, but writing, writing all of these great stories and, and the life that, that you had together at Vogri, for example, was like uh, just this magical place. You grew up in, with this magical mom and this magical place, but she was also kind of a shitty mom, right? Like when you moved in with her, 
She put up on the fridge, commitment sucks the life right out of you. This is our family motto. I mean, that's nuts. And when you told her that, that you were going to write this book, she was like, I feel violated. How, how dare you tell this story? She like killed your hamster. She was like, she's not like a... Yeah, she was your mother was a pet killer. <laughs> she killed your hamster. My mother killed my hamster too. And my cats. My mother was all the things that your mother is like, they, literally you've written the book that I now I don't have to. The thing is, she she loves you. Your mother loves you. No, yeah, and I would say, Wendy, I don't think she was a shitty mom. And that's not what this book is about. And actually, I don't think she's, I wouldn't use the term narcissist. Or if I did, I would say probably we might both have some narcissistic tendencies, which I think is true of like 99.999% of writers, particularly my writers of memoir. Because I mean, frankly, who does that for a living? Like my sister's a civil servant and she's just like, why is this your job? I work at Health Canada. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, and I don't even get a pension. So I would say, though, my mom, like, she's just a very, very, very complicated person. And she's very funny. And the commitment sucks the life right out of you motto was, it was a joke. Like, we actually found it funny. And then I began to find it less funny. But sometimes I still actually find it funny. Because it's actually kind of true. You know, when you have kids, you realize, oh, my God, this is so hard. Has she read your book? Yeah, yeah, she has. Yep. An early draft. And she, I think she has, it's fair to say she has mixed feelings. I mean, my mom is uh, mixed to negative, but my mom is very mercurial. Her feelings on things change, as do many of ours. So, and our relationship is just an ongoing, complicated negotiation you know, I will always love her and care about her and have her voice in my head. That's the other thing about your mother. She's right there. That will never leave. And I think she would say the same of me. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it, it's a painful sort of book. But the book, I don't want to sound precious, but I really did feel like I couldn't not write it. It just sort of came out of me. And I've never felt that way about anything. Not a column, not a magazine piece, not a novel. Like, I've never had that feeling before of just, I felt terrified of it. Just terrified. Because really to write honestly about a very complicated and formative relationship with someone who is quite a quirky, flawed, but loving person is really hard. Because mostly when we write about our parents, most memoirs, I find, or personal nonfiction, when it deals with mothers, the mothers are either mommy dearest, like the glass castle. I don't know if you've read that book, but like there, there's a whole genre of horrendous mother books because it's fascinating, right? But there's also a whole genre of perfect mother books. And this is kind of the problem with being a mother or having a mother is that most mothers are just neither. And my mom was, I actually would not change for all of my complicated feelings about my mother, I would not change anything about my childhood. Like, I really do feel like she completely made me. I was so weirdly confident. Like, in my late teens, I would just talk to my friends' mothers as if they were human beings, which they are. And that gave me a huge advantage, like, in university and then in my 20s working at the Globe. Like, I just had no, I didn't see, like, grown-ups as different for me. I was totally, totally unintimidated by adults, particularly adult women. 
And also she taught me to read and she taught me to write and she taught me to think. You're an unusual child and you've obviously inherited some really wonderful things from your mom. I guess it's just like I, Maureen grew up in a more complicated family, shall we say? And my, my mom raised me on her own. So, I mean, that was complicated back in, you know, a thousand years ago. I mean, she writes about how she loved you, but that she never should have been a mom. You write about how you spent so many years seeking to love her, but not, and sometimes failing. It must have been really hard. I mean, it must have been wonderful too, at 13, to be able to jump out the window and go and do drugs and play around with your friends and have your mom not care. But I guess, I don't know, I guess maybe it's just this old idea that mothers should be there to protect you. And you turned out fine, but maybe you wouldn't have. Oh, definitely. No, 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 definitely. I mean, my mom, she had failings. I mean, for sure. And she would be the first to admit that. But in a weird way, what the book is about is that she always said, and it's a repeated mantra in the book, it's your life. I would like to also say she was very much of her time. Like I was recently talking to Sarah Pauly, who I went to high school with, who has written a memoir. And in it, it, a lot of it's about her dad, her dad who brought her up who she identifies as her dad. And he was kind of a similar character. Like her mom died, he fell apart. They'd sit around smoking together and talking about poetry and politics. And she was like an actress. It's a weird relationship, but it was part, a lot of boomer parents were like that. The view on kids at that time was like, grownups just have to follow their own journey of personal happiness and kids will figure it out. And also. The best thing you can do for your kids is treat them like fully formed people, kind of like adults. So I think it the way I was brought up was not that unusual in a certain time and place, like among kind of educated, bohemian, media, artsy people in downtown Toronto. I have a lot of friends who had very similar, you know, childhoods. And now, of course, I'm bringing up my kids in a time when it could not be more different, right? Like everything is so, it's so swung the other way. And I actually really, I really kind of have a lot of issues with that. Like the fact that my kids are so protected and everyone's so, everyone's so terrified to let their kid go to the shop to buy something, but they're allowed to have a smartphone at 11 because what, the internet won't hurt them? I don't know. But but at least you know where they are. You can track them. But my mother's, the whole it's your life thing, I was actually a really good guinea pig for that because I kind of took it seriously and it gave me a huge amount of drive. I don't think she intended it this way. I think she, I mean, I think that was just her instinct and partly it was selfish. She just didn't have like the emotional resources. She left my dad and me and my sister and I think she never expected to actually have to like parent full time again when she moved to the city. But I was so in love with her that I just followed her. I figured out a way to get into this drama school. She couldn't say no. How could she say no? I was her daughter. So I think she was a bit like, oh my God, my whole Carrie Bradshaw thing. (laughs) It's really, you're really putting a cramp in my style here, kid. And so the deal was like, all right, you can, you can be here, but like, we've just got to be best friends. Like, I'm not doing any of this. Can I see your report card? You know, she never went to parent-teacher meetings. She did come to see my plays, but she just wasn't into that. She was, she was into me and I was into her, but she wasn't, she wasn't like a cool mom who was like, have your friends over, let's party. But she was more like, come party with my friends. But it really worked for me in a 
fucked up way because I, it was dangerous. Like I was feral. But toward the end of high school, I pulled up my marks. I applied to university. Off I went. That's another reason I wouldn't change it. Like I, often I was just the right kid or it just by accident, I sort of turned out OK. Although that's yet to be proven. She might argue with that. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see. When people say, "I've," you know, the look how you turned out, we're still turning. We're still turning. The jury's out until we're gone. Hey there. Uh, just so you know, Mo and I are not just the queens of podcasting. I'm not sure we're even that, but do go on. We're not part-time cowgirls. We just made that up. But we are writers. We're writers. Wendy and I write a newsletter on Substack. It's a weekly roundup of thoughts and experiences, sometimes serious, often not. Yeah, you're pretty funny. You, you write about falling down a lot. Uh, you write about your dog. I do. You write about sex and politics and COVID. All very, very serious things. We have a few thousand subscribers, both free and paid. And you could be one of them if you'd like. Just go to Substack.com. And look us up by name or go to our website at womenofillrepute.com and sign up there. We'd love to meet you there. And now back to being the queens of podcasting. Yeah, sure. <laughs> the Women of Ill Repute. I don't want to dwell on the horsemen because that, as it turned out, was just a launching point for the bigger project. But I'm interested in, I mean, that is the lurid hook. And that is what brought you and your mother together to do this project. And then, of course, you went on to do it as a memoir of your own. But I wonder, I mean, this was an ongoing relationship that she had as a child with a much older man. And he's dead now. And, and there's no um, justice to be had in that sense. But I wonder how much she and therefore you are a product of trauma. And I can't believe I'm going to quote Allie McBeal now. But often our problems define us. They make us who we are. And I wonder to what extent that has shaped the type of person and the type of parent your mother became and on to you. Well, you know, you can't prove a counterfactual. So it's impossible to know. And that's the thing about trauma, which I think exists in almost every woman's life and certainly within every family. Somewhere there's something. But you can't really prove its effect on you. But one of the offshoots of trauma for me that, I, that I'm very interested in is it really affects the stories we tell, like whether we choose to talk about it. And if we do choose to talk about it, to what ends and in what way? And then what happens to those trauma narratives? Like how do they define us? And what sort of power do they wield between us? So it's like kind of like the thing about victim narratives. I have very complicated feelings about victim narratives because on the one hand, they can be just fantastically cathartic. And obviously, women and victims should be encouraged to tell their stories. But once you become a victim, like a public, like an out victim, what do you get if you don't get justice? Like, what does it absolve you of? Nothing or something? You know, do you get to say, well, I did that because that happened to me? And there was a real thread of that, I think, running through my parenting. There was also just lack of boundaries. But lack of boundaries has, which I definitely was brought up with. Now, it could just be genetic, right? <laughs> Many members of my family have boundary problems. But I think ultimately, we have to be accountable. 
even if we are victims, which we all are to some degree. And I also think I don't buy the whole idea that trauma or stories or voices or anything can really be appropriated. I think the whole point of stories are that they are shared. Secrets are something that are not shared and they are ring-fenced, but stories, by their very definition, are shared. They're like cultures, they're like families, they're like countries, you know, they're a thing that exists between other people and they are very, very powerful and sometimes dangerous and people will fight to the death over them. Well, that it sort of brings me back to what you were talking about a few minutes ago, which is your mom at some point saying, I'm not writing this book with you or not tracking down the horseman. And you were like, no, I'm going to I'm going to keep writing. But she was insisting. I think she even wrote a, an article saying this story is mine and I don't trust you. I feel violated. This is my story. It kind of overlaps, I suppose, with I have a lot of friends, obviously, or journalists and, and writers. And they're, they're like ruthless. It's all about the story. And yet there's people in the middle. So like, who does own a story? That's a very interesting thing you're, you say, Wendy, because I think about that a lot. The way journalists will say, it's my story. Like, don't think of my story. Don't. It's a real thing in a newsroom of like, who owns the story? But of course, journalists want to own a story just to tell it first. So everybody can have it, right? Like, that's the point is to disseminate it. And it's kind of true. My mother and I are both journalists and novelists. And it's like a little newsroom in our family, you know, like this. Hey, that's my story. But I think also, of course, it happened to my mother. She was it was her lived experience. And that does change it. But the truth is, too, she published that piece. And I was in the middle of recasting the book to just be about me and my mom. And I couldn't write at that point about the abuse at all. But when she wrote that piece, you know, she had she had talked openly about it before. She was very public about it. But then it was permission to me. I know she didn't intend it that way. She she said, and this is in the book, she was just trying to get ahead of the story. Such a journalist idea. It's like get control of the narrative. But for me, it was like, oh, she you're not anonymous. You're not Jane Doe anymore. Now I can. I mean, I know that sounds just ruthless, but I don't know if you, Wendy, if you have ever done stories on like sexual assault or sex crimes, the victim has to talk first until the victim talks. Like literally you are legally bound. And actually, so part of the book, as you know, maybe I'm not explaining this to the listener, but it's part of the book is about the writing of the book. So it sort of goes, moves back and forth in time between my childhood and then my struggle to write the book. I think I make it sound, do I make it sound too meta when I describe it that way? No, no, it's, but I I just want to jump in here and say, this is like, you can't put it down. This is a very, very accessible story. And it's like, even though it starts off with a, oh my God, it's also very funny and very warm. And I just loved it. I think it was one of the better reads. And I think you're going to have a huge response. People might pick it up for one reason, but they'll put it down feeling quite differently, I think. So I want to ask you about writing memoirs. My mother died two years ago. So did Wendy's. They died within two weeks of each other. We have so many parallels in our life. It's crazy. I know that's just the, just the tip of the iceberg. Well, well that's okay. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> about my mother. Oh, my God. It was a huge relief. But and I've got stories I want to tell and I'm a writer and I want to be able to tell them. But I have siblings. And, you know, one of the first things I was waiting for is for my mother, because my my mother's story isn't shameful. It's just that she kept it so secret. She thought it was shameful, but I want to air it out. But my siblings and some friends, 
they may never speak to me again. And I wonder if you had any sense of that yourself. I mean, it's not just your mother. It's your father's involved in this, your sister, your friends. I'm assuming you changed some of their names. Yeah. Some people, it's fascinating, the difference in responses. Like some people were just horrified. And I have very good friends who are like, what is your book about? But I would hope that when they read it, they can kind of grasp it because it's kind of hard to even talk about what it's about without making it sound sort of awful. But then other people like my dad, he was just like, write your book, write your book. You know, he's a very straightforward guy, not in a kind of cheerleading way. And it did upset him when he read it and he found it painful. And he phoned me up after a couple of rum and cokes and shouted <laughs> and was like, not in an ang- in a sort of, Rah! you know, it's really, I would say, Maureen, that write about it, tell the story, but be accountable because you are going to, you know, it's not nothing. And there's a reason people don't talk about these things. I just felt like I couldn't not. I'm not saying, and I won't try to defend it and say it was the morally right thing to do, or I was trying to connect with other people who have similar issues. I just was totally compelled and terrified. And I was at a point in my life where I didn't even know who I was or what my career was or what I was supposed to do next. And I just, all I know is as a writer, when your body and your mind and your laptop is saying, sit down and write, you sit down and write. Because you don't get that feeling very often in my experience as a writer. So I don't know. It's, it's really, though, it really is hugely disruptive. Like writing memoir, honestly, is a practice that will not only put your story out there, it will affect your story with your siblings, with your friends, with yourself. And so you're, I don't know, you're kind of like my mom mentions it in the book to me. She says, you know, the last volume of Nausgaard's book, he wrote this this series of autofiction, My Struggle, and is all about how totally fucked up his life is now that he's become a famous writer writing about his life. I mean, ask anyone who writes that kind of fiction. Also, the kind of memoir that it is, is it's not a work of journalism. It's not a just the facts, ma'am. It is memoir is remembered history. So it's not an empirical truth. It's a remembered truth. So as a writer, as a storyteller, I'm very aware of the fact that I could have written 10 different memoirs about my childhood without changing a single fact, right? And it's really just about how you frame it and how you how you remember it and feel it. It's not the story. It's she who tells it and also the way that she tells it. I was really struck by at the beginning, I was, you know, and you were a kid at the beginning. And I was sort of shocked at her revelations about how motherhood was such a burden because, you know, I'm a mother and I'm like madly in love with my kid and my mom was madly in love with me. So it was all like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And then I was like jealous that your mom was so interesting, is so interesting. But there was this sort of battle going on in you in the book at the beginning about is she an asshole or is do I just love her and admire her for all of all of her good things? And then at the end, you sort of say, well, I just I love you and let's just work this out and we need to be kinder to each other. And and I just thought it was like it, it isn't just telling a story. It, it is a coming to terms with the whole with life, although your life and, and you're right at some point. I think all of us have this experience of, oh, my God, I'm becoming my mother. Oh, horrors. But you have a nanny and you have like you grew up in a different era where you didn't have to marry your high school sweetheart. And not that she had to, but, you know, people just feel different pressures and you have other supports and you can have a career 
and you have this loving family and you've worked shit out with your mom. Like you're kind of lucky. <laughs> no, no, no. I am. I am so much luckier than her and have had, you know, so many opportunities were afforded me that she didn't have. She felt pressures that I can't imagine to conform to a kind of idea of womanhood. It was really that time, you know, she came of age in the kind of late 60s, early 70s, but in a family and a world, Caledon, Ontario, that was very still like stuck in the 1950s. But my parents were aware that like, I don't know, in Yorkville, people were smoking pot. They d It just was not them, right? And so I think my mother felt, I know my mother felt just this feeling of like, I'm sitting here in this lovely house in this pretty little town on a lake with my perfect family. But she just wanted a career. She just wanted to, you know, she just wanted to go out there and, and have the life that she felt she'd been denied. The story she always told me, and it did happen this way, was that, so she was abused, but she had an otherwise unbelievably idyllic kind of country childhood, ponies, tennis courts, you know, literally fox hunting and really lovely. She was the eldest of five and quite an eccentric but loving family, most of whom have become writers now, by the way. And I love my aunts and uncles. They're all completely nuts, but in the best possible way. And a couple of them are very pissed off at me at this moment, which is painful. But what happened with the horseman and the fact that her father discovered that filled her with such shame. Not just that he had discovered it, but that after he, her father sort of dispatched the man, sort of banished him from the county. But of course, he was a hebophile. He was smart. He just like picked her up in his pickup truck and because he just moved down the road to Newmarket. Like grandfather was so naive. So that carried on for a couple of years until my mother was smart enough to figure out, oh, like he's doing it to other girls and he's a dirtbag, essentially. And she broke up with him. And then she met my dad right away, who was like captain of the hockey team from the wrong side of the tracks, hardworking. My grandfather just adored him. Everyone adored him because he was like, you know, up from the bootstraps, solid, handsome, loving. And they got married. My grandfather actually was very progressive. He, the story goes, he refused to pay for my mother's wedding until she had graduated with a bachelor's degree, which in that time is very, like, in that time, women got their MRS. You went to university for a couple of years until you met, got engaged, and then you dropped out because, you know. Yeah, my mom's older than, uh, than yours, but her dad said, university? Why? You're a woman. Why would you go to university? What? Why would you need that? Yeah, no. And so my mother, essentially, that was the world, you know, she felt so then she had me and my sister and we moved to this lovely town and we lived in this lovely house. And then my grandfather died of a stroke. He had Alzheimer's and was very ill and not, you know, of sound mind for many years before that. So in a sense, he was gone. But it was his actual physical death that she says it was just like a key fob, like a click. And she just thought, I don't have to do this anymore. The show's over. I'm out of here. And she didn't like leave in the night. There was a long, you know, that only happens in the movies, but it was a long, painful process. But it was, you know, my, I think my father, I know my father was just completely baffled. Like he couldn't, he wasn't perfect either. But, you know, I think it was very painful. And it is a very painful thing. I have a friend right now who's trying to leave a marriage with a husband. They don't fight. She just isn't in love with them anymore. And they have three kids. Like that's a very hard way to leave a marriage. And women who leave motherhood and wifehood 
just because, not because for any reason other than I want something else. It's a really, really taboo thing to do. Oh, it's perceived as selfish beyond belief. More so for, and not for men as much. I mean, that they're still judged, but for a woman, a mother, are you kidding me? Oh my God. And my father, the halo effect. Oh, he was a single dad for a few years. Oh, your father, because he was just this heartbreaking single dad. And I look back on that judgment that my mother endured. I can, I'm able to look at it objectively and sort of see how utterly sexist it was and how, how wrong it was. But, you know, at the same time, and I do think that probably what happened to my mother really did stunt. It made her, it formed every part of her life. And it was the reason, you know, she married my dad and the reason why I exist. But at the same time, one of the things I struggle with is the horseman himself. I think we give, and this was why the book that didn't get written shouldn't have been written. And I think that's a good thing because I think these predators, these bad guys, I think we just give them too much power often. And what really is the powerful thing, what the, the legacy that trauma and abuse leaves us with is the stories. Like, how am I going to tell this story? Am I going to tell this story? And what does it make me? And I really rail against the mystification of predators because often they're just, you know, when I actually looked into him, it was just not satisfying. I talked to a detective, this got cut from the book, but I talked to a private detective who owed me a favor and got him to look into it. And he said to me, you know, are you sure you want me to look into this? Because after me too, like I did a lot of these things. And I said, really, you did? He said, oh yeah. It was like two years of like, could you track down the dentist who raped me or the gymnastics coach who, and find out. And he said, you know, nine times out of 10, I would have to email over a copy of an obit that said, died peacefully, surrounded by his loving family. Please send flowers to the Canadian Cancer Society. And a long story of this lovely life. Now, everyone knows your obit isn't necessarily a real rendering of your life, but there's no real, I think, for women, for victims, the truth is not very satisfying when you're looking at what happened to him. I'm sure Maureen's got other things, but we're, we are going to have to wrap pretty soon. But I, I guess it's sort of a closing thought and feel free to go wherever you want to go, you guys. But first of all, my first thought is never tell your deepest secrets to a journalist. so i'm screwed because everybody knows everything there are still a couple of secrets but i guess it's like you talk about that there's been damage from you know that your your family is mad about certain things but also how good it has been for you to address this so i guess it's i guess you have rendered your story in the end and you've come to terms with your mom and what happened to her and what happened to you together and apart It's been a good thing, not for everybody, but maybe a necessary thing. So, No, I think that's true. I mean, you guys, you've just lost your mothers and that a lot of people would write this book then. And my mother actually said that to me. Why don't you just write this when I'm dead? (laughs) (laughs) Many times. And in fact, all of my aunts and uncles said it too. Just wait till she's dead. Like she's 70. She drinks too much scotch. There's Alzheimer's in our family. You know, what have you got? Like 20 years max, right? And I just realized the reason why I couldn't was because, frankly, I was kind of writing it for her. I wanted to be heard. And that's, I think that's how we all feel about our mother. That's kind of the frustration is if you have or had a difficult mother, it's about telling the story. 
you'll find this boring news. And I'm very interested to know your story, by the way. And I'm not going to grill you because it's inappropriate. But, you know, part of it is that you just want to get it out there because when you have a parent who frame, and all parents do this to some extent, who creates a narrative of your childhood and your family and your life together that doesn't quite sit comfortably. There is a part, well, there's a part of me anyway, that wanted to say, no, 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 that is not my narrative. Like, this is my story. So it's not about stealing each other's stories. It's more about just sort of saying, we're all allowed to have our own stories. And guess what? They don't need to fit perfectly with each other. And we don't need to actually accept everybody else's. There doesn't need to be one truth. What families are, what countries are, what relationships are, are negotiated truths. Well, it was something that I really appreciated about my mom when I was a kid. I would, my parents got divorced when I was, they separated when I was a baby. And I would always ask my mom, so whatever happened, mom? And she'd say, well, we loved each other and it didn't work out. And it wasn't until I was a teenager that I learned that he was gay and that, you know, he wasn't interested in her and that it was illegal to be gay back then. And he loved her, but, you know, whatever, we're going to fix it because it's a mental illness, not. But that's what it was in 1957, 50, whatever. But she never tried to, she tried to influence me and tell me the truth about her version of the truth about so many things, but she never tried to say, your dad, you know, hurt me or lied to me or whatever. She just said that he loved me. And then when I met him, when I was an adult, he tried to tell me stuff about her and I was like, no, don't go there. So it's like, everybody's got different versions of the truth. And I think as long as people are okay with the version that they're told, then, then they're okay. Yeah, that's fascinating. He wasn't that gay, Wendy. Come on, here you are. He wasn't that gay? (laughs) Well, I could tell you about that. Can't we say he's bi? He's pan, maybe. Let's just say Paul Newman. They both watched a Paul Newman movie, and here I am. (laughs) (laughs) Leah, your book, When You Where You End, when it's a long title, When You End and I Began. Where You End and I Begin just a wonderful book and wish you all the luck with that. And thank you so much for talking to us today. You're a true woman of ill repute. Thank you so much. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she doesn't hold back. Boy, I'm not telling her any of my secrets. (laughs) Not that I have any. No. (laughs) Well, if you dig hard enough, you'll find something. You know, it's funny about narcissism, which is how we kind of started this conversation. And I I maintain that, uh, if if not Leah, I still think her mother is a textbook narcissist from from what I can tell. But what I love is that Leah forgives her for that. She forgives her, period. Well, it was like, like I said on the podcast, like I started off thinking, oh my God, she's a bitch. And then yeah. it was like, well, she actually loves her and she's getting stuff from her and she's open about how she feels. And like, I'm glad I didn't have her because that would not have been easy as a mom, but yeah. uh, not that any mom is easy, as you know. <laughs> well, I'm perfect um, as a mother and so are you. Yeah, well, better than her. Well, who the hell knows? Who the hell knows? And I thought it was funny that she thinks that her mom is Carrie Bradshaw because to me, she was always Carrie Bradshaw. Yeah. I feel like I called her mom a shitty mom at some point. Yes, you um, did. And she, and she and she was at some points. And you called yes. her a narcissist, which she yes. was at certain points. But it's but not she for, loves her. It, 
Exactly. If Leah forgives her mother, then who are we to sit in judgment? Yeah. And I mean, the circumstances, she was, she had a, an absolutely traumatizing event happen to her. But again, as Leah says, you got to be accountable for your own life at some point. I want to hear what her, her mother and her father and her brothers and sisters, she says they're all like screaming at her. So I'd love to know more about that. But we, we yeah. it, that's kind of inside baseball. Well, you know, the other thing I want to be honest with, and you, you know the my story, it's not really my story, it's everybody in my family's story, and I don't mean to be coy, and I am going to, you know, be more open about stuff that's happened to me and my family at some point. I'm just still feeling my way. Yeah, that's somewhat sensational and hilarious and shocking, but I'm not just I'm not just dropping these little tidbits because one day I'll yes actually that's exactly what I'm doing. Well, it's hard to t- it's hard <laughs> to talk about these things Isn't about it? about mothers when you and and I and most people have like massive <laughs> mother issues. Yeah, but I, but I don't think that your story needs to be told on a on a chat with 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 with, with, with Leah McLaren. Yeah. You know, yeah. you choose you choose your moment. You just sort of yeah. acknowledge that <laughs> your mom was a piece of work. She sure was. <laughs> can I can I leave you with one more? Sure. Oh, no, no, not another joke. Yes, what did the narcissist say to the cannibal? What? I'm kind of a big meal. Good night, everybody. (laughs) The Women of Ill Repute with Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at womenofillrepute.com. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.